Section 12 of The Outline of Science, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle. The Outline of Science by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 21 The Romance of Chemistry. Part 1. When we first visit a great museum, we are impressed by the multitude of different kinds of things. These thousands of startlingly different species of animals, each itself and no other, these hundreds of different kinds of wood, shelf after shelf of minerals, and Aladdin's cave of precious stones, besides all manner of things artificially made, such as alloys and fabrics, drugs and preserved foods, some of the objects we see may fade into one another, but what almost embarrasses us is the number of things that are quite distinctive. We get the same impression of diversity when we take a walk in the country, or when we see a dredge or a trawl brought up on deck. Shuffling the chemical cards. Now a kindly curator in the museum might take us to the bird cases, for instance, and show that, after all, the diversity was in great part due to different shufflings of a not very large pack of cards. There are thousands of tunes, but there are not many notes. He might take us to the case of minerals, where, by ourselves, we got the impression of overwhelming and baffling variety, and show us that a comparatively small number of really different things may be shuffled into a multitude of diversities. A small cast of players may form a great variety of different tableaux. There might be in the museum a case showing a sheet of parchment paper, a slab cut out of a tree, a wooden pot full of glue, a cork for the same, a piece of India rubber for erasures, a celluloid beaker full of water, a lead pencil, a vulcanite holder, a pad of blotting paper, a lump of sugar, a little starch, and a hundred other things, as different as different could be, including even a diamond. And yet the label of the case might correctly state that all this variety included only three elements, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Perhaps this is one of the big revelations of chemistry for ordinary people, that in spite of the immense variety of things in the world, there is only a relatively small number of things that are really different, namely, the eighty or so chemical elements. We do not know how many words there are in the English language. But there are only about twenty-six generally recognized letters. It is the same in chemistry. Many different hands, but not such a large number of cards. Furthermore, just as there are some letters like Q and Z, which are not in very frequent use, in the same way it must be noted that many of the fourscore or so chemical elements are rare, and do not occur in more than a small percentage of the specimens in the museum. Many of the rare earths, though very important for man's purposes, do not play a large part either in the architecture or in the bustle of the world. They lurk quietly in remote corners. Take tantalum, for instance. It has been calculated that there are, on a very moderate estimate, a quarter of a million of very different kinds of things in this world of ours. But scientific chemistry has shown that this multitude is due to varied groupings of about eighty really different kinds of stuff namely the chemical elements. It is not easy to put the case rightly, for each fresh pattern may be something very definitely new and individual. 
just as a painter makes many pictures of the same few colors. Everyone knows the variety of patterns that result when the pieces of colored glass in a kaleidoscope are shaken into new combinations, but this is a static diversity. It suggests, however, what may result from the shuffling of a few elements, especially when some of these are what is sometimes called attractive. In general terms, the conclusion to which common experience and exact science lead us is this, that given a small number of sociable elements, there may be many a menage. From a few elements, even from fewer than we can count on the fingers of our two hands, there may be a new world. And the view is widely held among chemists that there has arisen from one elemental stuff the whole array of known elements. Section 1. In a previous chapter, The Foundations of the Universe, the problems which the physicists and the chemists of today are so eagerly investigating were fully discussed. We saw there how it has come about that all the observed phenomena of chemistry and physics are regarded as indications of the fundamental unity of matter. All matter, in short, is supposed to be, in its final analysis, essentially the same in constitution. The atoms of all matter consist of particles of positive and negative electricity. The simplest atom, that of hydrogen, is a unit of negative electricity, called an electron revolving around a nucleus of positive electricity called a proton. Electrons obtained from different atoms are found to be the same. In an atom of hydrogen, there is one electron. In an atom of helium, two. In an atom of lithium, three. The addition of further electrons to the system gives rise to the atoms of all other elements. All matter is thus supposed to be electrical in its nature. The atom, since its disintegration is seen to take place, is no longer the atom indivisible or incapable of being broken up into something simpler. It is not now believed that each of the eighty or so elements known to us has its own kind of atom, each stamped with its own properties. The properties and qualities of the different elements, it is believed, depend on the number and arrangement of the particles of negative electricity, electrons, and of positive particles, protons, contained in the atoms of the various elements. The view is that all the elements though they have different chemical qualities, are built up out of the same material. Thus, our ideas regarding the constitution of matter and the framework of the universe have been completely changed. The superlatively grand question is, what is the inner mechanism of the atom? It is the business of the chemist to attempt to fathom the mysteries of the properties of the various chemical elements to evolve order and system out of them. It is to the chemist that we owe our knowledge that the atoms of different substances can be arranged in a definite order, and also that they show an increasing complexity of structure. Heavier atoms appear to behave as though they were evolved from the lighter. Forms of matter. It is well known that under suitable conditions, the same type of matter can exist in three distinct forms, solid, liquid, and gas. In passing from one state to another, it is a matter of common knowledge that there are remarkable changes in appearance and physical qualities of an element. These changes are believed to be connected with the average distance which separates one atom or molecule from the other, and in the rapidity of motion. In the gas or vapor form, the molecules are on an average so far apart that their mutual attractions are relatively unimportant. The lowering of the temperature, the distance and rapidity of motion of the molecules, diminish until, under certain conditions, 
the attraction of the molecules for one another predominates resulting in a much closer packing in the appearance of the liquid form the molecules however still retain a certain freedom of motion but this is diminished with lowering of the temperature until at a certain stage the molecules form a tighter grouping corresponding to the solid state where the freedom of motion of the individual molecules is much restricted in order to account for the resistance of solids to compression or extension it has been supposed that the force between molecules is attractive at large distances but repulsive at small distances while we are able to offer a general explanation of the passage of an element from one state to another a complete explanation of such phenomena will only be possible when we know the detailed structure of the atoms and the nature and magnitude of the forces between them it is well known to everybody that the atom of one chemical element may combine with one or more atoms of another element when the chemist speaks of the valency of an element he means the number of other atoms with which one atom of this element can directly combine for example one atom of hydrogen combines with one atom of chlorine and the result is hydrochloric acid or one atom of oxygen will combine with two atoms of hydrogen and the result is water one atom of nitrogen combines with three of hydrogen and we get ammonia each of these combinations represents a chemical process that is to say a chemical change which produces a substance which is totally distinct not a substance which merely partakes of the characters of the two component elements thus are the various substances built up the elements are mostly found in mutual combinations and the combinations are sometimes of course very complex while a particle or molecule of water consists of two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen the molecule of the protide called albumin is built up by seventy two atoms of carbon one hundred twelve atoms of hydrogen eighteen atoms of nitrogen all brought into association with one atom of sulphur in all protoplasm of living matter there is a mixture of proteins carbohydrates and fats with intricate chemical and physical interrelations it is highly improbable that there is any one substance which deserves to be called the living matter or protoplasm what we actually know is a complex and heterogeneous system in which various chemical reactions take place simultaneously there is always involved as life goes on a breaking down and a building up of proteins but the riddle is still unread some biologists hold the view that there is an ultimate molecule of life hidden in the protoplasm which holds the secret of the endless building up and breaking down sir ray lancaster gives this supreme life stuff the name plastogen and he says in regard to its workings that whilst they can be grouped with the chemical and physical qualities of other bodies they so far transcend them in complexity and in immensity of result the whole creation of plant and animal life that their appearance constitutes in effect a new departure a sudden and to us unaccountable acquirement but then we must remember that it is also an unaccountable thing to us that water suddenly becomes ice at a low temperature and suddenly becomes vapor at a high temperature even if we are able to imagine the mechanism which necessitates these changes we cannot explain the nature of things even though we can classify them and arrange them in order and more or less satisfactorily guess what their inner mechanism is we cannot in our present state of knowledge trace them in detail to a first beginning 
Section 2. Some of the elements in their natural conditions are gaseous, like oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, chlorine, etc. Mercury and bromine are liquids, while a great number, chiefly metals, are solids like gold, iron, zinc, etc. Professor Meldola says, with respect to the distribution of the elements, it is of interest to note that more than three-fourths of the accessible crust of this globe upon which we live is made up of two non-metals, oxygen and silicon, about one-half being oxygen. Nothing affords more striking evidence of the marvel of chemical change than the contemplation of this geochemical fact that the superficial solidity of the earth is due to the predominance of those mineral constituents into the composition of which gaseous oxygen and the non-metal silicon enter to a preponderating extent the whole crust of the earth with which geology deals is composed to the extent of more than ninety nine per cent of only about twenty out of eighty two elements this will give an idea of the rarity of some of the materials which the chemist has had to deal with mixtures and compounds there is an obvious but important difference between a mixture, like sand plus sugar, like iron dust plus chalk, and a compound, like sugar or like chalk. A mixture is never homogeneous. It can be divided into different ingredients. A compound is always homogeneous. Its particles, however fine, are all the same, all the same until we begin to break up the compound into its components. With water, we can dissolve away the sugar from the sand. With a magnet, we can pick away the iron particles from the chalk. But it is usually necessary to take more thoroughgoing measures to split up a compound. It must not be supposed, however, that the distinction between a mixture and a compound is always easy. Air looks very homogeneous, but it is a mixture of a great crowd of oxygen particles, a still greater crowd of nitrogen particles, and small crowds of carbon dioxide and water vapor particles. Nothing seems more homogeneous than water, but pure water is never found in nature. There are always impurities in it, and one needs only to bring a glass of cold water into a warmish room to see how multitudinous bubbles of gas form on the inner walls of the vessel. These suggest, at any rate, that there is a good deal of gas mixed up with water. If this were not the case, no animals could breathe under water. For while water is a compound, H2O, of hydrogen and oxygen, it is not possible for animals to separate the two components the way plants are able to do with the carbon dioxide, CO2, mixed in the air or the water. Perfectly pure substances, though often advertised, are very difficult to obtain. They are indeed almost ideal, which led a great investigator to say that chemistry is a science of substances which do not exist. Traces of impurity in a substance are often of great practical importance. They sometimes influence the properties of the substance in a remarkable way. We quote a sentence from Dr. Mellor's admirable textbook, Modern Inorganic Chemistry, 1920. H. Vivian says that one thousandth part of antimony will convert the best selected copper into the worst conceivable. Lord Kelvin says that the presence of one thousandth part of bismuth in copper would reduce its electrical conductivity so as to be fatal to the success of the submarine cable and w r roberts austin says that one five hundredth part of bismuth in gold would render gold useless from the point of view of coinage because the metal would crumble under the pressure in the die molecules and atoms 
a mixture can usually be separated into its ingredients by more or less simple mechanical means a compound cannot be broken up into its components without going beyond several mechanical methods we break a piece of salt into finer and finer powder but each particle of salt thus remains salt if we could get hold of a particle which would cease to be salt when we broke it in pieces that particle would be a molecule of salt and we should have divided it into groups of constituent atoms sodium atoms and chlorine atoms a lump of salt is built up of a prodigious number of molecules of salt and each molecule is a little building of which the atoms are the bricks to return to the elements an element has been defined as a substance whose molecule contains only one kind of atom but this definition must be modified in relation to the fact that the elements uranium and thorium give rise as we shall see to other elements different from themselves nevertheless the general idea remains that an element is a unique and homogeneous kind of matter when an electric current is passed through water h2o it decomposes it into hydrogen and oxygen bubbles of oxygen may be collected at one pole and bubbles of hydrogen at the other pole this is a fact there is a theory perhaps more than a theory that free atoms of oxygen travel in one direction and free atoms of hydrogen in the opposite direction through the water ion the greek word for a traveler is the term applied to these particles which travel to the two electrodes during electrolysis ions are traveling atoms or groups of atoms which are started on their journey by the dissociation of the electrolyte say water and they are believed to carry opposite charges of electricity each molecule that is split up gives rise to two kinds of ions anions going to the anode pole and cations going to the cathode pole and these two kinds of ions are furnished with equal and opposite charges the ion with a positive charge of electricity is attracted to the cathode or negatively charged electrode and the ion with the negative charge is attracted to the anode or positively charged electrode and each ion will then be relieved of its charge and become an ordinary atom again the speeds of the migrating ions have been measured and it seems that the heaviest ions for example with the greatest atomic weights move fastest it has been supposed that this is due to the more slow-going ions dragging along with them a number of molecules of the solvent this is very theoretical but everyone knows the practical application in silver plating and the like a brass spoon let us say is immersed by a wire in a solution of silver salt say a solution of silver cyanide in potassium cyanide and the spoon is the one pole the cathode a sheet of silver is the other pole the anode a weak electric current is passed through the fluid and cations of silver are then deposited on the brass spoon which becomes a silver plated spoon mr c t kingzett in his popular chemical dictionary says of chemical changes all articles of food and clothing the materials of which our houses and buildings are constructed and which are needed for their decoration or repair every art and every industry all depend essentially for their production or activity upon chemical changes as realized in nature or made by man to serve human purposes the same is true of the production and decay of animals and vegetable matters as also the process by which they are broken up and the resulting products made available in their turn as food for new life these chemical changes constitute a sort of adaption of matter to environment and in a sense are acts of creation 
as every such change produces products which although related are quite distinct in character and in properties from the original substances which give rise to them when subjected to the required influences thus in a very literal sense all matter which as will be seen in other places appears to be essentially one in nature is actuated by a spirit of life being susceptible to change when the environment is appropriate chemical change chemistry is concerned with the different kinds of matter in the world and with the changes which they produce by interaction if a bar of iron is heated it becomes longer but it returns to its original length when cooled we call this a physical change for the iron remained iron from first to last but when a piece of iron left out of doors begins to rust we call this a chemical change for the iron becomes something different namely iron oxide with quite different properties this iron rust is not transmuted iron but iron in combination with oxygen and that is a very different thing chemical changes always imply a shuffling of the cards a new arrangement of partners pie man plus pie as the american expositor puts it on the one side boy plus penny on the other side a change occurs and the situation is pie man plus penny and boy plus pie this sort of thing is going on ceaselessly all the world over it is necessary to say however that the boundary line between chemistry and physics has become very indefinite especially in light of the fact that the qualitatively chemical differences between uranium and radium or thorium and radium seem to depend on quantitatively physical differences in the corpuscles of electricity demonstrating the invisible many of the materials with which the chemist deals are invisible and so is the air we breathe as long as it is dry and clean in ordinary circumstances none of us ever sees oxygen hydrogen nitrogen or carbon dioxide and yet all of these are as real as iron and lead sulphur and diamonds as professor james c phillips says a gas may be without smell or taste it may be as intangible as a spirit and as for seeing it why it may be off and away while the observer still thinks he is looking at it now it is worth while pausing to ask how the chemist is so sure about what he cannot see why he must reject the proverb seeing is believing invisible materials betray themselves by what they do the oxygen rusts the iron the carbon dioxide which we breathe out into a beaker of lime water makes the water cloudy a mouse lowered into a shaft containing the deadly carbon monoxide gas is killed the danger of this poisonous gas escaping from a leaking or badly burning stove is well known white mice used to be carried by submarines in order to detect the dangerous co gas but there are finer methods now in use when a tumbler is inverted into a basin of water we cannot press it quite down and we know that the rise of the water is being resisted by the invisible air in the tumbler sometimes we can ourselves almost lean up against the rapidly moving invisible air still more convincing is the test by which lavoisier founded modern chemistry the test of the balance for every invisible material has its weight even the hydrogen which is fourteen and a half times lighter than air and therefore lifts the balloon so easily we do not need to go any further in indicating how chemistry demonstrates the invisible but it would be dull indeed not to refer to the modern demonstration of invisible gases by turning them into liquids or solids section three liquefaction of gases modern science has given us a vivid picture of that condition of matter which we call gaseous 
Professor Clark Maxwell compared the molecules in calm air to a swarm of bees when every individual bee is flying furiously, first in one direction and then in another, while the swarm as a whole either remains at rest or sails slowly through the air. But we have to add to the picture the collision of one bee with another bee, for a molecule can travel only a short distance, its mean path, without striking another. Indeed, as Clark Maxwell calculated, the number of collisions which a molecule must undergo in a second must be reckoned by thousands of millions. In his famous discourse on molecules, he spoke of the time it took for the smell of an open bottle of ammonia to pervade the room. The molecules of the ammonia have a velocity of 600 meters per second, but they are not able to spread at that rate through the room. They strike against the molecules of air and are delayed. Each molecule of ammonia is so jostled about by the molecules of air that it is sometimes going one way and sometimes another, and like a hare which is always doubling, though it goes at a great pace, it makes very little progress. Gradually, however, the ammonia gas does spread through the air of the room. In a liquid, as contrasted with the gas, the molecule has hardly any free path, but is always in a state of close encounter with the other molecules. In a solid, the molecules have almost lost their opportunities for moving about. Now everyone knows that water vapor may condense into flowing water, and that this may freeze into solid ice, which may melt again and steal off as a mist. Saturated steam above 720.6 degrees centigrade is a gas. Thus water occurs in four states. The passage from phase to phase is familiar, but in the liquefaction of gases it became dramatic. About the beginning of the 19th century, Northmore and others liquefied sulfurous acid gas by pressure, but progressive research on the liquefaction of gases began with the work of Faraday and Sir Humphrey Davy in 1823, when chlorine carbonic acid, ammonia, and other gases were liquefied by great pressure. Later on, Tellurier showed how the evaporation of a jet of liquid carbonic acid produces cold so great that the rest of the jet is frozen into fine snow. There is a temperature above which no amount of pressure will produce liquefaction, and it was not until devices for securing very low temperatures were discovered, and this was a great achievement in modern science that it became possible to liquefy oxygen nitrogen and the like but with the invention of methods of obtaining very low temperature which brings the molecules close together just as heat drives them apart oxygen and nitrogen were conquered and in eighteen ninety eight professor now sir james dewar produced liquid hydrogen as professor tilden remarks it was both interesting and gratifying that the final victory which crowned the long series of successful attacks upon the apparently impregnable position of the permanent gases should have been recorded in the laboratory of the royal institution where the first successes in this field were won by faraday end of section twelve